Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have with me today Leland Bawa, who is a legal nurse consultant and has a long history in working in various clinical areas in nursing. She's also worked in the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and the United States, three very different cultures and climates and living arrangements. And her clinical experience is also diverse. She has critical care, med surge, OB, peds, uh, dental, eye, emergency department, and outpatient procedures, and of course, cardiac procedures, which is the topic for today. Lylan has experience reviewing charts, even before she became a legal nurse consultant, for quality issues. And what we wanted to focus on today is cardiovascular quality of care. As legal nurse consultants, we both know, uh, Lylan and I, that the potential for litigation can be extreme in specific types of cardiac mishaps or complications or misdiagnosis. And you as a legal nurse consultant watching this program may have been involved in similar cases where there's questions about, was there a failure to diagnose or a delay in diagnosis or a procedural catastrophe during a cardiovascular procedure? This is a quality area where there are concerns about monitoring the appropriateness of care and the skill exhibited during procedures. So they, they, and we'll find out who they are, put in place some cardiovascular quality measures. And that's my first question to you, Lylan, is what are these cardiovascular quality measures? And for our international listeners, if you're referring to United States agencies or regulatory bodies, please explain those also in the process of answering that question. Thank you, Pat, for having me today. And uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful question here. So cardiovascular quality measures has actually evolved over, over the years, and it has been developed into a national quality programs for now public reporting of hospital performance on a number of quality measures. And this is, of course, um, put together by the national cardiovascular organizations. And now there is a national cardiovascular data registry that not only collects actually data nationally in the U.S., but it also has a participated participation from other countries now as well. So what it is actually is the quality measures in the cardiovascular care are used uh, to improve the quality of care delivered to the patients. So it, uh, it is um, the data collect is collected and to ensure that the hospital operates based on the standards of care 
and the guidelines and then use to the improvement of that care so the patient get the quality outcomes that they deserve when they go to the hospital. All right. So what I heard you say is that it's data that's collected for the, the purposes of improving care, looking at trends or patterns in that data to identify problems and then sharing information back to the agencies. Correct me if I'm wrong in any of this piece that will help them say, yes, this is now how we need to change our procedures to make sure that we're complying with the recommendations that will improve quality of care. Yes, let me add also, there are many ways that the data is being used. First is internally um, for the hospitals themselves to improve their care, to see where they can improve, of course, where they are doing great, right? And the second, so it collected and submitted to the national registry, so we can compare among other hospitals or, we, or if they are, everyone is doing as they should be. And if you are a hospital, you're comparing yourself to other hospital of the same, maybe volume, same un, uh, equity of patients. So you know exactly uh, which, where are you in the process or is there anything that you need to improve? So you're trending that, as you said, and um, and um, evaluating on what improvements or what are the gaps that needs to be uh, uh, addressed. And plus, of course, right now there's pay for, for performance. Uh, now now the reimbur it, it's tied to reimbursement. So you need to have to have this uh, reported so you can show that you have something to show uh, that you did what you needed to do to the patients during the patient's uh, care and you do get uh, reimbursed for that care that you have given. Let's pull that apart as a phrase that not everybody listening to this podcast might be familiar with, pay for performance. What does that mean? Yeah, so pay, pay for performance is now the uh, way that the Medicare insurance pay for the services, right? For the reimbursement process. So uh, there are now guidelines. So if you are um, a doctor, for example, that um, not uh, doing well, or you uh, have a lot of issues in your care, the performance of your care to your patients, that could be grounds for not to be paid for the performance. And for some um, procedures and some um, patient care or diagnosis, this needs to be, um, it's a requirement to turn in and submit this data. In fact, this is also even um, a requirement also has become a requirement, not necessarily a requirement. They can use it to uh, renew their license. Mm. Yes, and, and it's tied to that as well. So paper performance, for sure, of course, when we pay, when you say paper perform performance, it's tied into reimbursement. All right. Yes. Lots of implications there. 
What are some of the issues, the quality concerns for patients who are undergoing cardiac procedures? Yes. Um, a lot of that I see um, from the moment the patient gets into the emergency room, going in with symptoms of cardiovascular, maybe acute coronary syndrome, chest pain, and the delay in the diagnosis. Because as we all know, any delay in determination of that patient's heart condition, delay in the diagnosis and treatment could have a lot of ramifications, complications. Because as we say, in cardiovascular, time is muscle, right? Every second counts. By the time the patient has uh, entered the emergency room, there should be a protocol that's in place. The patient gets into having chest pain, EKG within 10 minutes of arrival, uh, troponin, the, the use of the risk scores assessment, the cardiac risk score to determine if this uh, symptoms makes the patient a higher risk for cardiac event. And as soon as those um, measures are put in place, then we lessen the complication that uh, will occur in that particular patient. And of course, there are cases where the patient just came in with everything already going on. Like maybe they come in with cardiac arrest, with uh, uh, severe heart failure symptoms, or maybe they are in cardiogenic shock on admission so or on presentation. So that makes you know a little bit different story. But for patient with you know just a normal acute coronary syndrome symptoms like maybe sh chest pain, shortness of breath, back pain, um, stuff like that that would indicate a coronary symptom. Then it's very important that those processes are in place. What I hear in some of the cases that I've been involved in is that it's incredibly tempting for the emergency department staff to think that this is a GI disruption, disturbance, indigestion, diagnose it as a GI problem, send the patient home, and then the patient drops dead at home six hours later. In fact, I worked on a case that resulted in a multi-million dollar verdict in a small town in West Virginia when just that thing happened. Is that one of the things that is looked at in evaluating the quality of care when it comes to cardiac care? Yes, uh, definitely. There, there's what we call a readmission or follow-up. That's... Uh, when uh, that is when you are right, uh, when the patient has vague symptoms, because cardiac symptoms can also be attributed to other symptoms, especially with uh, women, elderly women, right? The symptoms with cardiac um, acute coronary syndrome is more vague and can be attributed to abdominal symptoms, especially in women. And uh, so that could be a diagnosis could be easily missed. That mm -hmm. is why when we are reviewing these cases, 
we are not just looking for the admission or the prior admission, but the subsequent admission and what happened to the patient after it was discharged to the hospital. Did the patient come back? Or as you said, that one patient even didn't even come back because the patient was dead. So the there are follow-ups that are being done by the hospitals as well. Uh, as I think this is widely known as well that the patient was discharged, uh, usually call the patient one or two days after discharge to make sure they were okay. And uh, yeah, those things could happen. Mm-hmm. Diagnosis uh, is unfortunate, but that still happens. Let's talk about the cardiac procedures, the interventions. And specifically, I'm thinking about things like cardiac caths and inserting stents. What are some of the risks of that procedure and where do those procedures verge from a known complication into outright malpractice? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Are you looking for the ultimate legal nurse consulting conference where you can discover how to get more cases and expand your skills. You are tuning in to the right group. Welcome, I'm Barbara Levin, past president of the American Association of Legal Nurse Consultants. My colleague and friend, Patricia Iyer, and I have been organizing and teaching knowledge-packed and fun virtual conferences during these COVID times. And we are embarking on our sixth virtual conference, which will be held October 27, 28, 29, 2022. Patricia Iyer and I have been taking the pulse of legal nurse consultants, both nationally and internationally, and once again, have put together a dynamic group of conference speakers and topics. This conference contains topics for every level legal nurse consultant, including the most advanced. Today, I will highlight our speaker, Jamie Gary, who is the principal of Up Vision Consulting, LLC. She has over 27 years of nursing, healthcare, and is a legal nurse consultant who is trained as a mediator. She has also been a nurse educator. She is nationally certified through the National Association of Certified Mediators. Jamie and I will co-present a program, When the Finger Pointing Ends, Mediation, and the Legal Nurse Consultant. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you, Barbara. I am so excited uh, for you and I to be uh, presenting this session today. Um, If you are a legal nurse consultant and you're looking for a new advanced role uh, for your skill set, your opportunity to market to attorneys, Uh, Just know that being a mediator, you do not have to be an attorney. And so this is an exciting role to be able to share. Uh, We will be discussing the nuances of the nurse as the legal nurse consultant as the mediator and as the uh, legal nurse consultant involved in mediation at the table for either party. We are very excited to present to you a short case study uh, for you to become a little more interactive Uh, in this process and to really learn about this advanced role with us. So we are welcoming you and hope to see you there. We look forward to presenting 
and offering the foundation of this exciting field and certainly the breakout session so they can work on their case together. Mm -hmm. Please join us October 27, 28, 29, 2022. This program will be videotaped. So if you are unable to attend the entire program live, in, then you can actually watch the videos at your leisure. So there is this option. Please see the link below, lnc.tips forward slash October 2022 virtual. We look forward to seeing you. Now let's return to the show. So some of those cases are done outpatient. Sometimes we just feel like, yeah, this is easy in and out. But complications can happen as well. Uh, that's that's why a prior um, review of patient history is very, very important. Because a number of things could happen. Like one of the common things is uh, for outpatient procedures, uh, as simple as acute uh, kidney injury could happen. Hmm. If a creatinine is not checked prior to the procedure, at least within 30 days, then you don't have a baseline. The patients get a dye during the procedure. If they already had a kidney issues prior, then that is adding to the injury and they end up having kidney uh, issues, uh, acute kidney injuries. And some patients actually end up having dialysis afterwards. Mm. That's, that's very important. And yeah, that's uh, a big injury. That, that's a big injury. Although nowadays uh, there are a lot of risk um, assessment that is being used, the tools that to use, like the AKI. But the thing is, <laughs> is it being used? All right, let's back up. You said the ATI. ATI, AKI, acute kidney injury. AKI. Oh, okay. Okay. AKI, acute kidney injury. Got it. So that's, a, that's just a simple example of uh, what could happen, right? Um, other things with the... Go ahead, Pat. What else is on your mind in terms of a... In, a complication that verges into malpractice or is malpractice? So, um, of course, we talk about delay in the diagnosis. Um, that's that's one because that could cascade into different complications. It could lead to heart failure. It could lead to cardiac event like uh, uh, ventricular events and cardiac arrest. It can lead into just, you know, the heart muscle not able to uh, just produce enough blood for the body and can even lead to stroke, right? Mm -hmm. Because with, uh, with um, myocardial infarction, there's the blockage in our heart. So the heart is not able to produce enough blood for the body. And so the whole body is compromised. It can lead to cardiogenic shock. And mm -hmm. so it is very, very important. Again, time is muscle. Uh, quick recognition of the symptoms and treatment is the key. You know, I've heard that expression 
when it comes to doing balloon angioplasties of the number of minutes from the time the person comes in the door to the point that they are on the table getting the angioplasty done. Do you know what that time frame is? It's, some, it's sticking in the back of my mind, but it's not coming out. 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Okay. Yes, but I tell you, it has been, the earlier the better, but not mm -hmm. more than 90 minutes unless there are events that's happening that needs to be done like the patient is in cardiac arrest of course they have to revive the patient because before they can do catheterization and revascularization or pci uh but the uh what you call is the standard is the 90 minutes or less some facilities are shooting for 60 and uh, some are doing it you know, what strikes me whenever I hear numbers like that is that's quite achievable if you have the fortune to live in an urban area well supplied by hospitals who have the equipment, who have the staff, who are prepared. But you could be in a real rural part of this country and suffer the symptoms that would require you to have that emergency procedure. And it could be an hour and a half by ambulance or two hours by ambulance. One of the things for our international visitor is that because traffic is so unpredictable, we tend to measure distance in the number of hours it would take to go from one place to another. Whereas, you know, you might say it's 60 miles or 60 kilometers, but growing up in New Jersey, as I did, where there's such a high population density, you could say, you know, that could be half an hour away, but that half an hour could be five miles. It all depends upon the traffic. So in, in looking at all those things, Lyland, in, in the responsiveness, when you look at cardiovascular quality measures, how do they factor in the great differences in the availability of equipment and of staff, if you know how that works into the determinations? I just want to clarify in the earlier question, the 19 minutes is from the time the patient arrived right. in the emergency room, right? Yes. So then uh, with the patient coming from home, for example, for office or wherever the event happened. So they could be either driving or call the ambulance. So I guess there's just education that needs to be um, implemented to the community. And for ourselves, we should know our own medical issues and our emergency plan in case those things happen. So we should be aware, that's one thing I think we should uh, address and be aware of when these things happen. I'm one hour away from the hospital, or maybe I'm like, as you said, five miles away, but there's traffic. What are the resources available for me? And at the same time, I think, I don't know, I can't speak for the other um, places, but where we live, there's a lot of urgent care. Uh, mm -hmm. outlying emergency rooms like on, on every corner. So there's not kind of an excuse to, <laughs> not to get there. 
on time. But uh, so once you get to the, that, those uh, emergency room, urgent care can uh, take on to the next step of putting you into emergency transfer to the main hospital or offer emergent care if you get to there. Yeah, it's it's an issue. And I right now also there's um, some delays that could happen, but uh, that is being looked at now. Uh, the emergency from the time that the emergency EMS arrived at the patient, how long does it take for them to get to the hospital and to have revascularization done for the patient that needed it, like a PCI perform or balloon or a stent uh, put in. So there is um, first medical contact, we call that first medical contact to device time. And that time is about 120 minutes from the time that EMS uh, arrived at the patient. Actually, it's, it's been changing. <laughs> we changed it from the time that the, that the EMS uh, left the site, wherever they picked up the patient, to the time that uh, the patient had a balloon put in or a stent put in. And what was that number again? 120 minutes. 120 minutes? Okay. So you have to have readily available EMS. You have to have an emergency department that is ready to receive the patient. You have to have staff on board in the procedure room who can immediately jump in and do the intervention. And all those things have to have, have to happen in a timely way because any delay along the way keeps stretching out that chance of recovery. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a lot of factors, Lylan, that have to go right in order for a patient to get that great result that the technology can provide, but all the human factors have to line up as well. Should be staff available. That's why there's always on call, cath labs, STEMI uh, patients, and there's always available. Well, <laughs> I would say that uh, they tried to have a um, uh, reserve cath lab for cases like that, but not even all hospitals have that cap capability. So that's another factor. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? Wow. We have covered a lot of territory this morning. Lylan, I know that our listener is going to want to know how to get in touch with you, get more information about the services that you provide. You're a legal nurse consultant. Can you tell our listener a little bit about what services that you provide within this realm of cardiovascular care? Yes. Um, as a legal nurse consultant, I be able to uh, not only screen cases for merit, but can do chronologies and do a deep dive of the cases on what went wrong from the time the patient has uh, complained of any cardiovascular or, or even to see if this is really a true cardiovascular event, right? 
we can uh, determine if there is uh, an issue there or there was a negligence or not, or maybe it's just a natural flow of event that happens because things happen, mistake happens. And, uh, but if um, there are negligence that are happen, this is where I, I can help you identify uh, wherever uh, the disconnect or the gap that happened, um, be it from outside the hospital or in the hospital, in the emergency room, or in the cath lab, from up to the time the patient is discharged, or even like cases where they were discharged but came back again, or something happened after discharge. So, yes, uh, we can help with that. What's the best way for our listener to be able to reach you? Uh, I can be reached uh, with my email uh, through my email, uh, Lylen, that's L A I L E N at L Bawa Legal Legal.com, sorry. Lylen at L Bawa Legal Nurse.com. Or you can visit my website at lbawalegalnurse.com. And for the person who's listening to this podcast, the spelling of Lylan's last name is B-A-U-A, Bawa. Let's do that one more time. Your email address and your my website. My email address is uh, Lylan at lbawalegalnurse.com. That is L A I. L-E-N at L-B-A-U-A-L-E-G-A-L-N-U-R-S-E dot com. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, Lylan, for sharing your knowledge. This is certainly an area with a lot of high risk and high stakes. If a cardiac emergency is not handled correctly, it deprives that chance of being able to recover or potentially living in a greatly diminished capacity because of the damage to the heart muscle. So all of these quality measures are focused on an important aspect of medical care that literally is life and death. Thank you for shedding light on this topic. I appreciate you, Lylan, as a guest and appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. And for you who's listening to this program, be sure to give a like and subscribe to this. If you're watching this on Legal Nurse Business YouTube channel, we release podcasts every week. We also share those podcasts on our app, which is Expert Edu. You can download that app from the Apple Store, the App Store, or Google Play for Android phones. My podcasts, videos, and blogs and other articles appear on that app and you can carry us around in your pocket and listen to the podcast wherever you are. The app again is Expert Edu, E-D-U. I look forward to seeing you on our next podcast and be sure to give a like, subscribe, and download the Expert Edu app. Thanks so much. My name is Pat Iyer with Legal Nurse Podcast. I have the pleasure of introducing to you Lisa Wade. 
Lisa is a legal nurse consultant whose business went through a real kick at the beginning of the pandemic. And she took a unique approach to rebuilding her business. I invited her onto the show because I was so impressed with her idea and how it worked out for her. And I would love for you to hear a little bit about what Lisa and I just discussed and recorded on the podcast so that you can get the full story by listening to Lisa's full podcast. Lisa, let's talk about what we just discussed in the podcast and what were some of the topics that we went through? Well, we talked about the pandemic and most of my attorney clients retiring. And so I had to find a way to grow my business. I headed to LinkedIn and started a group of attorneys that consists of my ideal clients. I started interviewing them on a weekly show, should you take that case? And I have gained at least 16 new clients from that endeavor. And it's been exciting. And what I did with Lisa in her podcast was have her take us through the step-by-step process that she developed as a result of forming this group and how all these pieces fit together. I think you'll be intrigued by this approach. It was new to me, and I love the way that she shared the information in the podcast to go through what she specifically has done to rebuild her business and using LinkedIn as the platform. Be sure to come back to Legal Nurse Podcast and get Lisa Wade's interview so that you can understand and perhaps think about how this would fit with your business model and your marketing. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.